0: Welcome to Embargo, a podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I am one of your hosts, Brian Fleming, uh, and I'm here with my co-host, Friend and colleague, Mr. Tim O'Toole. What's up, Tim?
1: How are you doing,
0: Brian? I am doing very well. And in just a moment, uh, we will be introducing the very first guest in embargoed history. Uh, we're very excited to uh, have have this guest on today. As we as we teased last time, we weren't sure we could we could get him, but he's coming to us. <laughs> this, is,
1: uh, this he's coming so to us live exciting. from his
0: villa. We're going to introduce him in just a moment. Um, <laughs> I mean. Before we're, we're we do, adding, though, we're,
1: we're classing the thing up.
0: We are classing the thing up. You, you, for those who are watching this on YouTube, please don't judge me and Tim. Uh, we, right. we never, none neither of us ever claimed to be the best dressed man at Miller and Chevalier, and this is only going to confirm that. We, so we um, in any event, uh, thanks for everybody tuning in uh, to the latest episode. Today, as we indicated last time, this is our China-stravaganza episode, which is timely because... China, not surprisingly, is just in the news, twenty four seven these days, and so we have a we have a lot of ground to cover today. There's going to be uh, no lightning round today because we do have so much content. Our, our I know it's very sad for those who are fans of the the sound and video effects, but. Um, Just for a quick roadmap for anybody who's listening and may want to skip to particular sections, we're going to start with um, our very special guest joining us to talk about the U.S.-China trade deal and the tariffs. Um, Then we're going to pivot to the big new rule that was just rolled out by BIS last week regarding military and users and and uses uh, relating to China. And then we're going to bring it home with uh, CFIUS and foreign direct investment and Uh, A bit of an enforcement roundup at the end, focused on Huawei and a number of the DOJ China Initiative uh, activities that have been going on the last couple months. So um, before we get into it, just a reminder to everybody, please, uh, if you you like the podcast, please uh, give us a rating. You can check us out, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, uh, YouTube, Google, anywhere you get your podcasts. Um, We uh, appreciate everyone's continued support and good wishes um and Tim any any final any final thoughts before oh and and the usual caveat we're not giving anyone legal advice these are our own opinions um and we're not sharing any confidential information so um Tim before we introduce our very special guest any final thoughts before we get started here just a
1: couple quick thoughts the first is you know it should be pretty obvious that we're not providing legal advice I think you can listen (laughs) to us for like 30 seconds and know that these got nobody would ever rely on anything that we're saying on the podcast. As opposed on, to on the
0: life. podcast, as right. opposed to when we're doing our day jobs and Absolutely. have our lawyer Absolutely. hats on. No, no, no. Yes. We we
1: we can give legal advice when we want to, but this clearly is not it. Um the other thing is is that you know, we hope many of you will subscribe to the podcasts on those various uh sites because um, you know. We really, actually, are we now have listeners on six continents. We, we're missing
0: Antarctica. No Antarctica, but everywhere else apparently we <laughs> confirmed that, we have that, some, we have uh, listeners. So that's that, pretty cool.
1: Yeah, you know, there's lots of people who want to hear non-legal advice about embargoes,
0: which is yeah. which
1: is great, and about China trade
0: and about China trade. And so. Without further ado, uh, let us introduce our, our very first guest. So we are very happy to be joined here today by our friend and colleague at Miller & Chevalier, uh, an expert in all things related to the U.S.-China trade agreement and the tariffs. Uh, he lives and breathes this stuff day in, day out, Mr. Richard Mohica. What's up, Ricky?
2: Hey, guys. How you doing? What's up, Richard? How,
1: how are you guys looking, doing? We are
0: good, we're good. And you are looking real good. And you're, looking, you're just li- luxuriating and right. living your best life.
1: Tan and well-rested. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm trying.
2: I'm trying.
0: Um well, thanks for making a little time to join us today and as I said, I think um we we need your expertise in our China deep dive here today to get into um a little more granularity than Tim and I are able to on the on the trade deal and the tariffs cuz uh while we follow this stuff closely, we don't this isn't our day in day out uh counseling and activities and and it is yours. So um, so to, to set us up I think for our first uh, sort of portion of the conversation here, a lot has been in the news the last uh, couple of weeks really since mm-hmm. the last our last episode dropped two weeks ago relating to the uh, phase one of the u s china trade deal and uh, meeting requirements and expectations and the president has made some provocative statements that have gotten have gotten everybody in a tizzy sort of running around speculating that we're about to scrap the deal or try to renegotiate the deal. There was a very um, heavily reported upon phone call that happened yesterday um, between a very high level official in China and Secretary Mnuchin and I believe uh, Lighthizer, Robert Lighthizer, the US trade rep. And the reports coming out of that are Generally positive, but a little bit of a mixed bag. And then today, just before we hopped on, we saw uh, the president again, sort of grousing and casting doubt about the future of the trade deal. So I think w- we have a lot to cover, but let's just start there in terms of mm-hmm. what are you, what do you make of sort of what's gone on recently in the public comments and the signals that are being passed back and forth between the U.S. and China on phase one and on just kind of the overall future of the, of the trade deal.
2: Sure, sure. Well, I mean, th- there's no doubt that uh, this has been a very, very hectic week for U.S.-China trade relations. And um, the, the what was reported this morning, uh, and you just alluded to, is this uh, conversation between top-level trade officials uh, from the U.S. and China. And this is really, as far as I understand, the first uh, conversation of this type since the trade deal closed in January. And what's interesting to me is that, is that there are different readouts from the call. Um, the US, uh, and, and we've heard Lighthizer say this morning, USDR Lighthizer say this morning that as a result of the call, both companies have agreed to satisfy the expectations of phase one of the agreement. Uh, and what you hear from China is really a different tone. Uh, you know, first you hear that there's that, you don't hear China say that they will keep up their purchasing promises, and instead, they have a very carefully crafted uh, statement, which I think is is uh, is worth repeating. Which is that they that they agreed to strengthen cooperation on the macro economy and public health, and to create favorable conditions for implementing phase one of the deal. So. That is, an oh, that is an overwhelmingly
0: <laughs>
1: right.
2: positive message. Yeah, right.
1: so, exactly. So, so let, me, let me see if I've got this straight. So it's I read the statements. You've got Manukin basically saying, oh, we have the greatest marriage, and it's going to be even better in the future. And uh-huh. then you've got China saying, oh, we're still working on things, but we're really hopeful that we can work stuff out. And then you've got the president in the background saying, uh, I don't even know that person.
2: Yeah, I mean, what's what's that's absolutely right, and and it's and it's not unusual in any given day in U.S.-China politics these days. Um, what is, but but it, this seems to be a much-needed uh, call after a, a really terrible week, where um, starting on Sunday, the president went on went on TV and uh, to kind of. Uh, speak about the situation, and and it's very clear that the relationship uh, has deterioro- deteriorated as a result of of two main factors. One is, of course, the uh, the coronavirus and the fact that the U.S. administration is blames China for its handling of of the virus. And second, it's this kind of inevitable conclusion that the China will not be able to buy uh, as much as it promised as a result of the uh, I, well, as promised in, in Phase One of the of the U.S.-China trade deal, and you know, as a as a refresher, what happened there was China pledged to buy 200 billion dollars worth of American farm, energy, and manufactured products and services over the next two years, and uh, and also address some some of the U.S. complaints related to intellectual property concerns. But if we focus only on the um, uh, on on the purchase piece uh the coronavirus has has really made that almost impossible to fulfill and um and so the the US is is taking a very strong stance with China at the moment and you know what we've heard from from president trump and the administration is that they are looking for ways to punish china for number for for, for its handling of the coronavirus. But in addition to that, they are considering uh, even withdrawing from the deal uh, because if, if China does not uh, satisfy its purchase commitments.
0: Well, let me ask this question. So with respect to the purchase commitments, and I'm not going to get the numbers exactly right, but isn't it, it's more heavily weighted this year, right? Isn't it a hundred and something million this year and like 70 or 80 million worth of purchases next year? Is that right? I
2: I don't remember exactly whether there's how the numbers um, pan out between this year and next year, but but, but you're it's, looking
0: at yeah, it was some there's some split. I can't recall exactly what the breakdown is, but in any event, r- regardless of what the number is this year, I mean, what is from all the economic indicators, just in terms of just b- given the economic impact that the coronavirus is having in China, mm-hmm. here and elsewhere around the world, you know how. Real, if it feels like this is almost a doomed to fail kind of scenario because China doesn't have the purchasing power to to be keeping up its end of the bargain, and how how is the how is the U.S. side of this even going to work in terms right. of be, being able to produce the goods that are going to be needed to fulfill this?
2: Yeah, it's it's it, it you're, you're hitting on the right point. I mean, it goes both ways. Not only is China uh, at a at a, in a very difficult position in that it cannot buy the goods that it promised to buy, but also in in part because of coronavirus related logistics the u s cannot produce the goods that 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 they need to sell to to china so so as to um, conform to the deal so we 're coming to a point where either uh, it, it seems to me that that the p- purchasing according to the targets is going to be almost impossible, and we may come to a point where um the parties come together to uh, renegotiate those targets. Yeah, given... that, that,
1: was, that was my question, Richard. I mean, so it seems like you have this kind of unforeseen event that post-dates the agreement. Mm-hmm. You have these targets, you have a timeline. This well, event-
0: Well, it post the agreement in certain parts of the world, but not well, in China. Well, right, actually. right, right.
1: But, but it, <laughs> yeah. as but of yeah, the time yeah, of yeah. the agreement, yeah, they yeah. weren't. They, nobody was thinking that the entire no. global economy was gonna shut down in the next few months. Mm-hmm and And so, like what normally you would think that if both parties really wanted this deal, they would just kind of change some of the the either the dates or the targets or both to accommodate the new circumstances. Has there been any talk about that
2: right yes i mean there's there the agreement has a force majeure clause that they could tap on if they if if they if the parties wanted to do so it's a it's a force majeure clause that would that uh in in the event of an unforeseen circumstance which we can. Uh, I think agree is the situation here, right. then the parties can can uh, can come together and uh, and renegotiate those targets, whether that will happen, who knows and and as you know, the position right now the the u s position is that um, you know buy or or will walk so that who knows but what is complicating this is that it appears that at the moment the u s is more interested in punishing China than in keeping the deal going. And in particular, um, the, the Trump administration has made comments to the effect of, you know, we, we need to deal with the situation at home. Next, we're going to move to punish China. And there is no talk about uh, the, a much anticipated phase two of the agreement. So, yeah, and, right. and, and in fact, we've heard, we've heard uh, people from the administration call um, you know, say that they're going to turbocharge this effort to uh, that that has started, you know, years ago, but has to has to continue during this time, which is to strip this uh, the China from the uh, strip the, the main supply chains that serve the U.S. out of China and move them to other countries. And and the U.S. is exploring many tools to do that.
0: Yeah, and we're gonna Tim and I are gonna cover some of those later on in the episode uh, as we get into some of the export controls and other things that are going mm-hmm. on right now. So, well, let me ask this question. So, it, it has it's always sort of struck me that um, you you know this was this was a I mean this is just my my impression. My impression was this was a deal the U.S. wanted more than China, and that they were for political or other reasons, and so they they sort of made it happen. And now, you know, the political value of the deal is probably not what it was perceived to be when it was about to be entered into because of the chaos that's come along due to the coronavirus. And so um, in terms of what, you know, and it also seems, as you alluded to, that one of the strategies here of the current administration is to beat up on China Relating on sort of all fronts for many different reasons, including the fact that uh, they you know either fell down on the job or willfully allowed the virus to sort of get get out of China if you believe certain perspectives on it, and they're now looking for sort of whatever levers they have to just inflict pain on China and sort of use use them as a bit of a straw man or a, a you know a sort of sacrificial lamb to to sort of pin pin blame on here and so in terms of so you alluded to bring more pain to china and more tariffs scrapping the deal potentially so if if there were going to be more tariffs there was if there was going to be another round um are we talking about broadening out the um products that that's going to hit are we talking in the industries are we talking about just you know raising the numbers are we talking about some combination of those two what would that potentially look like at this point
2: i think uh, i mean first of all we the the we currently have tariffs on 370 billion dollars worth of of china origin goods that covers almost you know close to uh you know 90% of all all goods that come from china and some of the ones that don't some of the goods that don't uh, are not subject to tariffs today are goods that um the the us needs for medical purposes including to fight the coronavirus so i don't i don't see a situation where the um well, I, I see two potential scenarios. One is the, uh, the Trump administration could raise the, per, the the percentage, the tariff rate. So move it. Currently, the the these punitive tariffs range from seven point five percent to twenty five percent. So there's room to go higher, of course. At you know, with any of the of the different uh, tariff tranches. Um, and the other um, the other area where where they could they could still um, uh, punish the U.S. I guess uh, punish China um, is is um, as a result of the China deal. Uh, there's there's a sliver of tariffs uh, the, of uh, tariff codes that are not being uh, that are not subject to these punitive tariffs. They're what's re- what's uh, regarded list as a list 4B and it covers a lot of consumer electronics um and as well as some textile and apparel products so those are industries that if you if you wanted to expand the scope you could to 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 broaden uh the industries that's somewhere you could go yeah yeah so i think on the
0: so the yeah that's and that's as you said that's um you know this is something that's going to bear close watching over the next few weeks and months as as the this continues to the war of words and, and regulatory actions continues with respect mm-hmm. to China. So, two two things I wanted to follow up on there. So, one is you you made a point of saying you know right now the current emphasis of the U.S. administration is very much focused on um, punishing China. The flip side, obviously, is that we, there's lots of uh, reports coming in the news, kind of daily weekly, about various U.S. companies and industries that are seeking tariff relief in the face of COVID because they are like, you know, many around the world are just struggling right now to keep the lights on and to stay afloat in the midst of a, a global economic crisis. So what is, so give, give a little overview there just in terms of what the what types of relief are people talking about? And, and do, do you really see any, prospect for meaningful relief to, to come on the US side in terms of
2: tariffs. Sure. So I, I think the on the on the tariff side, there's an ongoing opportunity for companies that uh that import uh products that in some way um are needed to address the, the COVID outbreak. So um not only PPE but um, products like lab equipment um that are slightly distanced from from the the front line but are still necessary to that effort and so what the USTR did was open uh, open and kind of an ad hoc out of cycle um exclusion process uh, and they are and they are considering comments from companies uh, that that if if successful would they would would get tariff relief Uh, frankly I, I looked before the podcast and i and uh, two hundred and forty five or so companies have submitted exclusion requests to date and my understanding is that ustr has not yet ruled on those so there there's still uh, a month or so um, the, the deadline to submit these exclusion requests is june twenty fifth so there's still some time but um, uh, we'll we'll have to wait and see to see whether this is really going to turn into some actual relief uh, and in addition to that there's um, as, as, as you know, there's an exclusion process available for uh, the, the various list tariff lists, lists that have come through, and uh, the USDR is still issuing exclusions um, on, a, on a somewhat regular basis. So. Uh, and 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 for companies that have received exclusions, which are generally one-year-long exclusions, there's an opportunity to renew those for for years uh, for another year. So there is there is there is certainly still some like a glimmer of hope, I would say, for companies. And uh, something that you know I always tell anyone, everyone is that um, exclusions are product-specific and not company-specific. So something that we do pretty often is. Uh, help com- help companies look at these lists to see if any of the products that they import are on the lists even even if they had no part of requesting them because that can that could mean significant relief
1: so big picture richard um, yeah in terms of the tariffs and and the pros- prospects for more punitive tariffs uh, have you seen anything to to suggest whether that's really serious or not you you would think i mean you know, tariffs have their purpose, but but they they are a lose lose proposition economically. I mean, they, you inflict pain on China while at the same time you're inflicting pain on yourself. And when the economy is good, you know, maybe there's some wiggle room to do that. But mm-hmm. now, I mean, the idea of raising tariffs in in a you know, I, I think the unemployment rate is now up to about fifteen percent. Mm-hmm. Seems like an in, an idea that uh, you would. I think a lot of economists would would question whether this is the right time to try that.
2: Absolutely. I, I think you're, you're, you're right. And there is just widespread opposition to more tariffs and there's even, you know, uh, criticism within the, the administration circles as to whether more tariffs at this point make any sense and would have any, any meaningful impact. I, I think uh, that um, the, even though the t- uh, tariffs are the president 's uh, weapon of choice, I think that there's that there will be other ways to achieve uh, similar objectives and which and and that big picture objective is to uh, force companies to move their supply chains out of china uh, and so I think we we will see um, uh, national security probes. Uh, we'll see stricter export controls, and I know you guys are going to talk about that later. I think we may see uh, legislation or, or executive action uh, that that could relate, for example, to curbing investment in China, uh, perhaps tax incentives, maybe reshoring subsidies, uh, and even uh, the, the administration may play you know, a stronger role in, the, in U.S. procurement requiring, for example, when it comes to medical devices, that, um, a higher U.S. content or Buy America requirement, something like that. I think there are other tools in the toolkit beyond tariffs, uh, given that, for the reasons you note, more tariffs would be incredibly unpopular at this point.
0: So I think you're, the the point you're making about the sort of decoupling from China of supply chains is one that right. Tim and I are certainly starting to see with respect to our clients, largely due to some of the new export control rules that have been put in place or that are being contemplated now uh, that we're going to talk about momentarily. One one sort of you know final area uh, that I'd love to hear from you on is you know what have you been seeing so far from your clients are hearing in terms of what what are people actually doing at this point because i think this is this is a big obviously this is a massive expenditure it's a massive undertaking if a if a uh, multinational or a u.s based multinational is going to endeavor to try to reorient and reroute their supply chain to avoid china um what is what have you been seeing so far in terms of steps that Companies you're working with have been taking. Are they still in the planning phases? Are people really making, starting to make moves and in, in in execute and implement, or or where do you where do you kind of see things right now?
2: Sure, that, that's a great question. I it it and it really depends by this uh, on on the size and sophistication of the company. The 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 bigger companies uh, with very complex supply chains. Uh, have the luxury of being able to move around and make some very um, uh, fast decisions as to uh, what to do and uh, and and those th- those bigger you know multinationals tend to have a um, uh, a, a phased or tiered approach where uh, some um, there's some movement out of China but they're trying to keep uh, a a bit certainly in China, given the huge investment. And, uh, and there's, there's a, there's a fair amount of, of uh, legal argument that goes into um, uh, whether, whether to stay or go. So uh, companies are looking to see whether they can manufacture some in China and then uh, have a processing step in another country, for example, uh, such that the origin of the country of, of the product is not China and they could benefit from uh, not paying the tariffs upon importation to the United States, um but that involves you know that that's generally the case when you have multinational with with factories in places other than china the The companies that are uh that are solely in China, for example that they have a contract manufacturer there um, are in many in many ways stuck and uh there's there certainly for some companies we've 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 helped them find uh and implement that, you know this change to another country but um uh but that's not always that's that's not always the case and i think that um uh for the most part companies are uh the smaller ones are just uh are are finding a way to get out and uh if they can and the the bigger ones are trying to diversify their supply all right
0: yeah. So that's all, That that's all fascinating. And it's, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. So um, before we let you go, um, we just any, any sort of final parting thoughts, any other sort of, Whether about the trade deal uh, what's going to happen with sort of phase one, are we ever going to see a phase two? Um,
1: and we will call yeah. this the, the Richard <laughs> Mojica lightning round.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, I got so yeah, a jingle. Any, I got a jingle for get that. Okay, yeah, great. maybe we'll have yeah, maybe we'll have Matt throw in the little jingle. But uh, <laughs> what any any uh, so just any any sort of final just things you're chewing over or, or sort of curious about how they're going to play out here.
2: I I'm really curious to see what's going to happen with uh w- with with phase two actually. I don't I, I I've not I haven't heard of any particular plan to implement to move the deal forward. And so as it turns out, phase one is just all about China purchases. Um, so. Uh, which is interesting because this is if if you if you followed the trade war from the beginning and you understand the reasons or the, at least the stated reasons uh, for uh, for implementing the tariffs, which really in 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 many ways have to do with the Chi- Chinese industrial policies and concerns about intellectual property theft and and protecting the rights of U.S. companies in China. Um, you consider where we are right now where you know as a result of of, of years of negotiation all we have are uh, you know increased purchases which are are meant to uh lessen the trade gap but nothing else um y- you really wonder what this is all about right you seem to have gone full circle in a way and 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 you just you know, and 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 in the meantime us companies have suffered quite a bit in paying all these tariffs
0: yeah and i have to say as somebody who has uh who used to prosecute ip theft and economic espionage coming out of china um just looking at the you know the sort of uh the the pledges that the, that china made in phase 1 on on the ip theft side and, and tim and i are going to talk about this a little later in context of the doj china initiative right. um i i i don't i don't I don't know that there's much there. There at the end of the day, I mean, there's uh, you know they can, they can make statements like the one they made after the call yesterday about how they're putting in place and looking for infrastructure to support these pledges. And at the what does that really mean? Is yeah. that really gonna is that really gonna result in any change behavior? Is that They've really? They've been saying
1: this since the Clinton
0: administration. I mean, that's exactly right. So I think that I think for I think for, for to my mind, that's not a terribly meaningful. Uh, you know, get for the US in terms of what China has pledged. And, and so, you know, We'll, we'll sort of see how it plays out. But but I, these
2: but these tariffs really do have like really, really meaningful effect on companies, you know, to, oh, companies yeah. have had yeah. to react to them. Oh, and, yeah. and, and, and to me, like at the end of the day, what I'm really looking forward to to answer your question is how companies are go, like, what's going to happen uh, and whether there will really be a supply chain reorganization where companies actually pull out of China, yeah. because, because what we're hearing, you know, from companies is like, well, it, it may not be today, but it may be tomorrow where, um, the administration continues to tighten the screws in China, and we really don't want to be involved, you know, in the long term. Yeah. So, and it's interesting if you if you create an like an alliance or a counter that moves the supply chains away from 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 China. You, you may recall that that was in fact the purpose of the TPP. The idea was let's create an alliance of countries, let's give let's give preferential treatment to trade among the countries so that we create a a, a counterweight to to China. And so, you know, whether that that was nixed by the Trump administration, but it seems interestingly that we're we're headed in that in the same direction, but through a different vehicle. And of course,
0: if you know, we're six as we sit here today, we're recording this on May eighth. We're six months away from the presidential election in the U.S. If if Biden were to prevail a year from now, we may very well see some new version of the TPP that's being kind of stood back up because that was a centerpiece of Obama era trade policy, right?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the thing to to think about, though, is that um, if you called it something different, you could almost, you know, sell (laughs) it to the Trump administration, right? I mean, it's really kind of interesting because I do think, you know, and we'll probably talk about this on a different episode, there's not that much light when you come right down to it between where Obama was on this and where Trump w- was on this in the sense that I think Obama was concerned about a lot of these same things with China. He was you know, an advocate of the TPP, which did a lot of the things that the Trump administration is trying to do in terms of building an alternative to China. Yeah. And yet at the end of the day, if, if you ask the current president whether his trade policy bears any similarities to the Obama administration trade policy on China, I'd I, think you would get an emphatic no.
2: Yeah. And and to end on that note, Tim, to end on, on, on that note, the uh as you know, NAFTA was recently modernized to use the administration's term, uh, and now we have the USMCA. And Certainly, one of the ways that they modernized NAFTA was to take a lot of the progress that you know, a lot of the the um, these new concepts that had been developed through the TPP negotiations and drop them into this new infrastructure. So, it, the administration did, in fact, do what you suggest. They they they. Uh, um, it, 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 they repackaged it in a way where it served their interests. It's all a branding
0: exercise it's a at the branding end of the exercise. day. Let's not, let's not, let's not, yeah, let's not kid, yeah, let's not kid ourselves, but, um, but in any event, all right, um, so with that, I think we're going to bid adieu to Mr. Richard Mojica, our very first guest in Embargoed History. This was great, Ricky. That's, we really appreciate it. Thank you, Rick. And, uh, have fun, uh, sipping some cold beverages on your exactly. veranda after you leave us today. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Maybe we'll join you by the pool later.
0: Yeah.
1: Exactly. All right, All right. thanks, thanks. You guys. See, Take you. Care, Richard. See you.
0: Bye. Bye. So, uh thank you to Richard for joining us. That was a lot of fun. Uh I I think that bodes well for future uh guest spots on the podcast after I think we did that uh semi successfully the first time here. So, um with that, let's move to topic number 2 today, which is the new uh the, the big new BIS uh, rules that were issued just uh, about ten days ago, and I'm going to turn that over to Tim to right. Jump we're into staying that.
1: right on the same theme. Um, so, so one of the many restrictions on trade with China in terms of exports uh, is is a is based on a concern of again, it's kind of a the, the theme of technology um, appropriation by the, the Chinese government. But this is kind of a more unique concern in terms of Uh, military technology appropriation, and that has been a long-standing concern of the United States um, dating back, you know, again to the Clinton administration, and one of the ways that uh, the U.S. has for a long time enforced these sorts of, um, uh, uh, or tried to keep the Chinese military from gaining access to U.S. technology was through a a portion of the expert administration regulations, the EAR 744.21, that restricts uh, certain products, certain U.S. origin products um, from being used, at, or at, at least until recently, from, from military end uses uh, when they're exported to China. So you can't send a U.S. good to China or certain U.S. goods to China for military end use. That has been a long time restriction. And so if you're a company and you export to China and one of your products is on the list of products that can't be exported to China for a military end use, you have to make sure that uh, you your product is not being uh, used in particular ways that could could help the chinese military or
0: so you have to go try to you have to go try to get a license we can get
1: a license you can get a license because yeah. yeah. this is a it's not a prohibition it's a license and in fact um, until it, in you know it, currently and until june 29th you you could get a license. So it was, or you could, well, the, it was
0: theoretically a, you could get a license until June ten. I can't imagine right. too many are going to be issued. But yeah, right.
1: No, and and especially now. But the, but the 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 licensing standard was case by case, meaning yes. that you know you could go in and if you could show them that you had a good case for a license, you could get a license. Um, and that regulation actually also contained restrictions on sending. Any items so it, it, or put any items on on the list to the Russian and Venezuelan military, so they would call military and users, um, but it didn 't contain that restriction on china so so as long as the product was something um, that as long as the as long as the mili- the Chinese military wasn't going to use the product for a, a military end use that is in connection with a you know military product with a gun or with a fighter plane or something like that you could even U.S. companies could even sell to Chinese military end users now as a practical matter I'm not sure that that. Uh, that gap was uh, all that important, mostly because uh, for the most part, there would be a presumption that if you're s- selling to the Chinese military as the end user, that there was going to be a military end use for the product. And so I- I'm not sure how many sales went directly to the Chinese military, but but. uh recently, in the last two weeks, what the U.S. has done um, in response to uh, some provisions in the the, uh, Export Control Reform Act from from last year, ECRA, they have tightened uh, this rule and actually made this military end-user restriction. So military end-user is selling anything to the Chinese military, um, is now uh, restricted, so you can still get a license, and it still has to be a product that is on the list of products that's covered by this rule. But um, one, of the, so that was one change. There's a military end-user restriction, but the other change that is probably even bigger is that the list of products that are covered by this rule, the list of things you can't sell to China for a military end use, or to a military end user, um, were were. Uh, greatly expanded. And so, you know, previously, those products had been pretty narrowly limited to some of the highest technology products. But, um, you know, there's this, this new list has now included, the one that goes into effect June 29th, now included products that are you know, pretty lightly controlled from an export control stand, standpoint, so only for anti-terrorism reasons. Um, you're talking about mass market encryption so- software wasn't on the list, but now it's going on the list. You've got tele- telecommunications testing equipment, a number of types of electronics, vibration testing agreement, uh, uh, equipment, and so there's all these new products that are added to the list, and there's restrictions now. Not only on sales for Chinese military end uses, but for uh, use by the the Chinese military. So that we, is kind of the the sum and substance of the rule. And then um, I'll yeah, let I you was I was yeah, I was going to I was just going ch- we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll ch-
0: to ch- chime in too that the other related. So first of all, for anybody who hasn't read about this or isn't up on this. There's actually many, many facets to this. We're we're really focusing in on this aspect of it. So just to be clear, there are many facets of this. Right. There was a there's a license exception that's that's gone away. There's one that's likely going away through a proposed rule. Um, it's
1: complicated, but that's kind of the gist. Yeah.
0: the the one other thing I would add to highlight is just that the not only everything Tim just said about military end users and the and the list of products, but the the definition of military end use itself has now been broadened. Right. Um, and and that is that is significant as well, and and in particular, it's significant in the way that the broadened definition of military in use that is now in the EAR, coupled with the broadened list of products, um, and coupled with the um, fact that now military end users are covered in China and have these restrictions upon them, those things together is kind of the the area that we want to focus on today, because as as I said, there's there's twenty different things we could talk about here. So just to be clear, we're not trying to cover the waterfront, um, but these new rules with respect to military end users and end uses in China, I think that interplay is really what's most interesting. And 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 Tim, and so so what? So to throw it back to you for a second, Tim. So what? um explained everybody sort of w- with the existing um with the existing definition of military and user which BIS has been very clear in the in the federal register notice they were very clear they were not amending the definition of military and user they right. were now making it applicable in China but they were not they were not amending that definition they uh, and they were putting new requirements on exports to military and users in China but not amending However, there's some legacy language in there that right. that we've been referring to as sort of a catch-all provision that that's pretty broad in terms of how you could construe military and user. And then when you add that to the broadened definition of military in use, and you add that to the new, much expanded list of products that are now going to be c- caught here, what are we what are we <laughs> what are we thinking right. about there? And where where do we think this is? Maybe heading and how is this all going to get cleared up because because to to sum up, it's it's a little murky. It's a little vague. I think there's a broad reading and a narrow reading of how this all works. And um, we have our views on how that works, but it's unclear where commerce, the commerce department's going to come down.
1: Right. So so, you know, uh, Part of the problem here is that this provision, and this is why I mentioned it uh, in the intro to this segment, this provision currently only applies to sales to military end users in Russia and Venezuela. And right now, there's not a whole lot of trade with Venezuela, and there's not very much trade with Russia since both countries are under some sort of economic sanctions, and they're not just traditionally, particularly Russia is not a big trade partner of the US. And so, There was, there has been this military end user restriction, but it didn't apply to China. And so it wasn't that big a deal. But now, um, it's gonna apply to China. And so, you know, military end user, when I was, when I was talking about it before, I said, well, the Chinese army. So that's, but, but really, the definition tries to define, well, who is the Chinese army that we're talking about? And some parts of the definition are pretty easy, right? So they, they actually say the Army, the Navy, the Marines, the Air Force, the Coast Guard. And then they talk about the national police. They talk about government intelligence and reconnaissance organizations. Still pretty good. I mean, you can tell that those are governmental organizations. You kind of know who you're looking at in terms of who the end user is. But but the real issue that that um, you know we've been focusing on, we, we put out an alert on this a couple weeks ago, is, okay, so that's the Chinese the Chinese military, Chinese military end user, but there's this catch-all phrase that says any person or entity whose actions or functions are intended to support military end uses, as defined in section F of the section, and as you mentioned, Brian, section F of military end uses is now going to get broader, so, so, uh, you know, but if you read this, you know, if you took a really broad reading of this, you could almost read it to say, well, any Organization that engages in a now much more broadly defined military end use, or whose actions and functions are designed to support a military end use, then um, and then you you'd be you 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 could include all of those within the Chinese military. Well, the problem with that is that there's all these you know at least non government seemingly non governmental research institutions, um, uh, you know uh, universities in China that. Do civilian projects. And so you can, you know, they they certainly could sell to US companies and and you could reasonably believe that those sales were not for a military end use. But if those research institutions do completely unrelated projects for the Chinese military, which some of them do, probably most of them do, even if it's only 10% of their business, now are they now part of the Chinese military because they have engaged, they're an entity whose functions or actions are intended to support military end uses. And I think, you know, there's a lot of reasons why I think the answer is no, because when you give a list of things that are the Chinese military, and then you're trying to include a research institute in that it doesn't seem to fit and you can parse the language of this to to make arguments as to why it doesn't fit so i think you know the much better read of that rule is that you know military means a governmental institution that that engages in military policing type functions but but that's not what the language says so you really have to do some work to get there
0: yeah the the other thing i would add to that is the, that's not even mentioning uh, beyond academic institutions, research institutions, just companies, right? Yeah. Just private companies, pr- private companies, as, um, you know, as, as everyone knows, I think there's, there's obviously some blurriness in uh, the way that Chinese, what's a, what's a state-owned, what's an SOE in China, what's a, you know, government-backed company, what's a private or you know, entity that is receiving some support or doing some work for the Chinese government in some way. I mean, that would that would cover just about everybody in 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 across the right. board in almost every industry, right? Where there's some kind of blurriness and this whole. And again, going back to sort of first principles with respect to this rule, if the idea is to thwart civilian civil military integration in China and the diversion of items that are Purported to be for civil uses, but that are ending up in military hands or for military development projects or or the like, then a broad reading of that is really broad. And if if that is the case, again, remember, as Tim said at the outset, we are we are now under when this goes into effect at the end of June, this is presumption of denial for any right. exports that would be going to military end users for military end uses under the new rules. And so if that is the case, it, it, there's been, I think somebody, I, I can't, I can't recall which, where I saw this written, but it was a day or two after the rule came out. Somebody was like this, this could be g- game over for certain US trade with China, because it's, it's going to be impossible to get a license. And uh, if, if we're under the broad reading, literally just about a- any entity in China that has any plausible connection to the government, which is Again, just about everybody uh, is is potentially off the table. So that's that's I think the the big oh, you know bleep oh, heck. sort of takeaway from this, right? Is that um, is that really what this is meant to do? Uh, I don't and- think
1: it was meant to do that, but I do think that it, the unfortunate reality is that they and and the reason I say that is if you look at the guidance that came out with it. The the description of what military end user means is pretty narrow. I mean, it it just gives the list. It doesn't even mention the catch-all. And so I don't think they were trying, at least with the the way they wrote it, to turn the Chinese military into every single business and company and to include every single business and company in China that's ever done a project with the Chinese military at any point in time whatsoever. I mean, that, I don't think they were trying to do that. And I think there are ways that, you know, lawyers can construe regulations um, fairly within the law, not to mean that, but they didn't think about it. I just don't think they thought about it. And it just hasn't come up much because Russia and Venezuela are so, you know, not they're, they're not involved in trade but this could be game over if you read it too broadly
0: and to to get into to sort of bring this home because we could keep talking about this point for a long time uh i would say that you know a little bit of the how the sausage is made is our understanding is that this rule was something that was and this goes back to what we talked about with richard earlier in the episode let's just inflict as much pain on China as possible. Yep. Okay. So this rule apparently has been kind of in the can for a long time. It was something that was cooked up. This is, again, I don't, you know, I'm not trying to be a journalist here, but this is just from what we hear from our sources and friends and colleagues throughout DC. This rule was something that was in the can for quite some time. And from the top down, the 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 mandate came down. I want more pain on China. And this was... Sort of at the ready, and it got rolled out, and there was no notice and comment, and it just got dropped on everybody you know two weeks it'll i think when this airs, it'll be almost exactly two weeks since this came out uh and so um you know I think there are definitely different schools of thought as to how broad this is really supposed to be, because if you take the broad rating, the pain is severe, and if you take the um, if you take the narrower reading that I think we believe is, is appropriate, it's, it's perhaps not as much. Now, I think that also begs the question and, and maybe this is where we'll, we'll, end is so what should companies do about this at the moment? Right? If, if, if there was no notice and comment period, uh, so this is the rule. And we, again, we hear that there are there is guidance that's being worked on by the folks at the commerce department, but, you know the way the rulemaking and guidance process works uh, even in sort of you know more uh sort of serene times is that everybody across the interagency gets to comment on that and weigh in and and now i would suspect that folks at dod and other places are going to come in and maybe feel um yeah let's the broad reading like we're not gonna we don't want you to put out guidance that sort of gives Gives much daylight here, and 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 on the other side of that, you're going to have U.S. industries, in particular the semiconductor industry, and many and many other high tech industries, that are going to be that have we know have already mobilized to try to uh, advocate for a, a narrow reading of this because it, it, again the decoupling from China is moving supply chains out of China. Maybe that's a long term play, but you know trying to do that in a in two months is not realistic for most b- businesses and so that's just not an option at the moment and and they're trying to sort of work the problem from inside the system. So what are I guess your your final thoughts Tim on sort of what what should companies be thinking about and doing right now in the face of of this rule that is potentially an existential threat to some.
1: Yeah, so so a couple of final thoughts. So first, um I have formally heard that BIS is working on guidance on this and that they hope to have it soon. Um informally, I've heard that exactly the same, the sort of discussions that you're talking about are going on behind the scenes as to what that guidance will say. And so um, one of the things that I think um, could influence the way that that comes out is if people and companies will actually make themselves heard as to, to this could be game over. And here's why this could be game over, because you've added all of these new products to the list, and then you have this theoretically, you know, gigantic definition of Chinese military end user that includes not only the army that everybody assumed that it would include, but includes all sorts of companies that nobody would have ever guessed were, you know, going to be read to mean that they were part of the army. And I think if um, if companies would make themselves heard uh, in terms of why that's that's such a bad idea for America and why that's such a, a wrong-headed idea in terms of regulatory construction. Um, I think that that could be helpful.
0: Yeah, and I and I should add as a very very last point here that um, to the, the great credit of the the good folks at BIS, uh, they have shown over time I think a lot of uh, openness to hearing that, to getting data and examples, and to being persuaded and to uh, needing more sort of fuel for the fire to sort of figure out how this can really be crafted in a way that's uh, perhaps serving the you know the punitive purpose on the one hand, but is not going to be destructive on the other hand to U.S. interests. So
1: well, and remember, uh, I mean, even if even if these companies are are not military end users, it's still, you'll still need a license that will be presumptively denied to sell to any private company that is going to use your product for a military reason. And you've got a lot of due diligence that you have to do in order to make sure that they're not using it for any military reason. So it's still a pretty broad rule, even if it's what we're calling narrowly construed.
0: Right. And that also, yeah, that also just brings up a lot of questions about how that gets administered, implemented, what kind of yep. compliance steps you would need to take. And as we're sort of rooting through this and advising companies at the early stages of this, these are things we're wrestling with. So anyway, stay tuned. There's no doubt we will be coming back to this topic at some point in a future episode. But with that, we want to pivot away to another big China topic which is uh, foreign investment and this is this is one that we have actually not really spent much time on to date on any prior episodes even though it is an issue and an area where Tim and I do spend a lot of time and that's uh the committee on foreign investment in the US CFIUS and um the we could spend multiple episodes just talking about China, SIFUS issues. We will, we're not going to do that because we're hour we're, three. We're, we're going to try not to make this a four-hour podcast. But sorry, Matt. Uh, yeah, but uh, late as we record late on a Friday. But right. um, the, the main thing I want we wanted to focus on is, um, and for those who, and just let me give just a quick. You know, two-minute background primer on this for those who are not as familiar with CFIUS. So, CFIUS is the collection of uh, government agencies in DC that uh, reviews foreign investment inbound to the U.S. for national security concerns. Uh, the CFIUS, uh, two years ago, there was a new law passed by Congress called the Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act, FIRMA, uh, which did exactly that. It sort of sought to modernize CFIUS and broaden its purview and its jurisdiction. And it took from the, uh, that was signed into law in August of 2018 and just a few months ago in February of this year, uh, there were, um, there were the regulations were finally put into place uh, to fully implement CFIUS. So what we have now is, and, and I should add, FIRMA and the new regulations were largely driven surprise, surprise, by U.S. concerns relating to China and Chinese investment in the U.S. and Chinese investment in the U.S. leading to uh, the ability to steal valuable intellectual property and uh, and have access to sensitive personal data of U.S. persons and the like. And so that is, uh, that is largely what was motivating the new rules uh, put in place for CFIUS. And in fact, um, early evidence is that, and sort of anecdotally from what we know from our work in this space, uh, I think at the height of uh, of the Chinese investment trend in the U.S., which was, I think, the very last year of Obama into the first year of Trump, so sixteen, seventeen, there was something like $25 billion, I think it was $25 billion is, is, the, is the number I've seen in a, in a recent study of Chinese investment in the U.S. And as of last year, it had dropped all the way down to Three billion. So saw
1: that number; it was shocking.
0: Yeah. So there, there has been already a massive sort of curtailment of Chinese investment. So, from the CFIUS investment security standpoint, it's kind of mission accomplished. And and I should add also that the main contribution of Firma. Again, we could do like four episodes on this, but the the big thing is under old CFIUS, uh basically uh, they were allowed to review MA transactions and what are known as control transactions uh, that would result of a foreign investor getting control of a U.S. business. Now, under the new rules and the new regulations, control is not necessary. Those are still in play, but there are non-controlling investments now that CFIUS can review in several areas, including uh, critical technologies, critical infrastructure, sensitive personal data, and real estate. So the, that is, in a nutshell, kind of what the new CFIUS can cover. And like I said, that's a, a drastic oversimplification. But for our purposes, that's 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 all we need for today. So the key thing and the key issue that we want to talk about now is: so Chinese investment way down. Okay, people, policymakers, people in government, you know, happy, relatively happy. And we have the new rules in place and the new jurisdiction and the new tools. But now we have the COVID crisis. And we have a lot of people that are struggling, as we have been saying, to keep the lights on. We have startups who uh, would normally be in the market for um, startup capital, venture capital, uh, funding rounds to help them go from sort of phase one to phase two to phase three of their sort of growth trajectory and their plan. Um, And that, you know, again, anecdotally, and what's being reported, these things, everything's been sort of turned on their head the last two months. And so what we started to see is a kind of preemptive fear in the U.S. government and, and in particular coming out of DOD um, that there's going to be kind of opportunistic uh, investment coming in from China, um, try sort of under the radar, perhaps not being um, notified to CFIUS, even though there are now some mandatory reporting requirements or filing requirements with respect to certain types of investment they're still pretty narrow. And so only certain types of critical technologies and certain foreign investment-backed uh, investments require or mandated to be notified to CFIUS. Everything else is voluntary. And so the, um, the, the effort that we're seeing now and the discussion that we're seeing is um, somewhat proactive, is trying to, um, what they have termed uh, thwart adversarial capital which is a term i don't think i have ever seen before um, Especially I, in I a can, capitalist can, society right i kind of like it actually right. it's it's pretty it's a good it's so hats off to whoever coined that phrase but um, i thought it was bernie yeah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it could could have been that would be ironic but um in any event uh you know trying to get ahead of what would be known as adversarial capital which is really just a shorthand for we don't want opportunistic chinese investors to come in and scoop up U.S. businesses or to fund U.S. businesses in a non-controlling manner in the wake of the, um, you know, the destruction that COVID is creating. And, uh, you know, so we're trying to get the word out to get people aware of that. So I guess my my question to you is, what do we make of that? What is, um, you know, what are the prospects of success on that front and how big a threat do we really think this is you know, a year from now, are we going to wake up and see numbers that suggest that there was actually a massive influx of Chinese investment in the second half of 2020 that never got, you know, notified to CFIUS? I, I, I don't know. What, what, are, what are your thoughts on that?
1: So, so last show, um, our theme was OFAC understands, and that was their response to the to the COVID crisis. And so, if you were, you know, doing your best, but you were there were extenuating circumstances, OFAC would be kinder and gentler in terms of its review. CFIUS does not understand, and I think that's kind of the 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 opposite side of the scale where they're saying to Chinese investment, don't try and take advantage now because we're paying extra special, careful attention to any Chinese investment, especially Chinese investment of an adversarial nature. I, you know, it might, it, the government's pretty busy and pretty slowed down right now, so it might not be a, a real threat um, and from, from Cyphius. But I do think that anytime you have such a huge economic downturn, the idea of turning down money, even if it's foreign money, it gets a lot harder. And so I do think that there certainly are going to be opportunities for an investment um, from China and, and anywhere else that American companies are going to be desperate for at this point in time. And so I, I, I think that that kind of adversarial capital, to the extent it's out there, um, this, is, this would be the right time to spend it and whether CFIUS is going to be as um, Diligent and active in trying to shut it down. We'll see. I mean, we haven't seen any signs of that other than just talk.
0: Yeah, I think this is right now. This is sort of a prospective issue, right? Because I think there's there's a lot of talk in the, especially in the private equity world, the venture capital world, about how everybody's sort of keeping their powder dry to just inundate you with cliches at this point uh, and waiting for when the, you know the dust settles. There's another one. Um, to sort of jump into the market and take advantage of what are going to presumably be some pretty serious uh, buying opportunities or investment opportunities, you know, whether it's late this year, first half of next year. And so one thing I'll say is, um, you know, an interesting question is as a, so two, two things, I guess. One is we have seen a trend in recent years and firma and the regulations have put an emphasis on this and made this a point um, to sort of, uh, part of the sort of new and improved CFIUS is this idea of looking back at prior concluded transactions and prior investments to potentially investigate them and unwind them if they uh, are deemed to be national security threats. So, I think for anybody out there who thinks that uh, you know they might be able to sneak one in under the radar, perhaps that's the case. If, uh, but perhaps not because you know the between the trade press and and siffis's own resources there there is there is attention that gets paid to these things sort of eventually like how how right. soon that'll be i don't know and in what areas and in what industries it's hard to say some are pretty predictable maybe some others less so but that's just one thing to keep in mind the other the other question i would put out there as kind of a bit of a hypothetical is if you are a especially if you are a sort of up and coming company that is that is sort of cash poor and in a development phase and um, you know, as we well know, compliance is not a high priority necessarily at that phase of your development. You are, you're just trying to develop your idea and get to market or, um, you know, you're working on the science, you're working on the product development. That's your primary, um, you know, focus. And if, if, an, if, if, a if. You came upon an opportunity to get some investment from a, a Chinese investor or a you know a, a fund or somebody that had some Chinese uh, investors behind it somewhere in the structure. Um, how you know how risk averse are you versus how much are you just focused on? Well, I need to fund my operations for the next six months or a year, and I don't. I'll worry about this later if if somebody were to come and ask me about it. If the U.S. government were to come and ask me about it. So I think the where does, how do you analyze that? Where, where, what is a, um, what is a risk that's big enough that you might want to, you know, think about stop pumping the brakes as opposed to um, just, you know, perhaps accepting the money. Where where are those lines drawn for every company? It's going to be a little different depending on the industry, depending on the, you know, where you are in your life cycle, all those things. So again, just sort of, I don't think these things have clear answers. This is just really more kind of putting this on the radar because I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about this in the next six months.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, the thing is, is that FIRMA gives CFIUS a lot of tools to crack down on this if it wants to back up its tough talk. And people are paying a lot of attention to China. Uh, it, I, it, it's looking like it's going to be a big issue in the 2020 election. And so uh, I, I I, think that there, while there will be temptation to take this money, I'll be curious to see um, if if companies really do because um, carries a lot of risk. Yeah, and again,
0: every case will be different, and and quite frankly, part of the exercise here, as we know, is that they're for the the smaller companies. There's just sort of getting the word out about what Sifios is and what risks you may have in that area is, is still a work in progress in some, in some parts of the country and in some industries. So, uh, you know, Silicon Valley, people who are tied in, in the Valley, New York, DC, they may be pretty well-schooled on this stuff, but there are not plenty always, of, pot- not always, as we know from our own experiences, but also in other pockets uh, of the country where there's a lot of interesting, um, especially on the, on the, in the, on the tech side of things, a lot of interesting stuff going on and new ventures, Getting stood up, um, not as much. So we'll see. But anyway, we we did feel like we had to, we had to mention cifius and we had to mention foreign investment on our on our China extravaganza. Um, and with that, I think we're gonna now head for home with the last issue with the last sort of big topic, which is a bit of an enforcement roundup. And Tim is gonna start with uh, with an entity and an issue that is near and dear to our hearts. Uh, and then we'll move on to. Some uh, more IP and DOJ China initiative issues
1: what kind of China extravaganza would this be if we were not talking about Huawei?
0: It would be none at all. It would be a right. sham
1: yes. i 'm g- exactly it would be worthless, and you could just you know delete it as soon as you downloaded it um, so i 'm going to try and do a Huawei lightning round, I think because <laughs> you know at an hour and whatever into this, um, you know we probably don 't want to spend you know, the next two hours talking about Huawei, but there's been a number of developments as, you know, we could probably say that on every podcast, there'll be, there've been a number of developments relating to Huawei and it, it would always be true. So we've talked before and we've heard that there are potentially harsher entity lists coming, any uh, list conditions coming. So Huawei was put on the entity list um, back in, I believe it was August of, of last year. Uh, and, um, you know, there are, Rules that generally apply to entity list entities but but there's some perception that those rules haven 't been hard enough on Huawei. The main one being that um, they 're able to get uh, a foreign goods that have a below a twenty five percent level of u s origin technology um, and that are not the direct product of u s technology um, and so so the, the 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 rumor has been for a while and it 's been more than a rumor it 's been talked about officially is that uh, Huawei, that, that those rules with respect to de minimis and those rules with respect to direct, product, to direct products of U.S. technology would be lessened for Huawei. That is that they would be tightened up in terms of making them more harsh and the numbers, the amount of U.S. technology that could be included within a, a good that ultimately found its way to Huawei would be a lot lower. Maybe those are coming, maybe they're not. I mean, we just keep hearing back and forth um, that they they are they're just about here, and then they're not, and there was at one point where they were done, and then they were vetoed by the defense department, at least that was what was reported and so so I think that at some point uh there is going to be a crackdown on those those rules, or at least the threat is going to be there for a long time but but as in terms of solid information it's still something that's out there but hasn't happened yet
0: I, I would add one other thing that was reported recently is that perhaps they've now got a Plan B in terms of cracking down on Huawei, which uh, it was reported. I think we, I think I read this in Politico that uh, that the Plan B is to crack down on the foundries that Huawei uh, that supply product to Huawei in terms of semi- semiconductors. And so, uh, if if the if BIS felt that they could sort of put the squeeze on them, then that may be a, a slightly uh, less direct but perhaps equally as painful way that they could. In- inflict some more harm on Huawei so that that at least is also apparently in play and and is is being considered so again we don't know what's coming on that but uh, you know stay tuned because the other, the other thing that goes along with that is that if that were to come to pass either of those things we have we have certainly heard and uh, that there would be retaliation from the Chinese so that would probably put US companies in the crosshairs that are have big pro uh, presence in China, and who knows what that would mean and and how that would play out so that 's a domino effect that could really be pretty significant and pretty major if that if that 's how this plays out
1: yeah i mean i it's it 's going to be out there a while or it 's going to happen one or the other i don 't think they 're going to you know withdraw that threat. So so another thing that has happened since Huawei went onto the entity list is that it, right at the time they went onto the entity list, uh, BIS gave some guidance uh, because a lot of U.S. companies were asking, okay, so now that Huawei is on the entity list, can we participate in uh, these these committees that formulate 5G standards because generally when you come up with a new technology um, industry plays a role and, and it's usually multinational committees that play a role in figuring out well what are the standards going to be for 5G so that the you know you can take your phone from one country to the next and, and basically get continuous service and so Huawei was on a bunch of these committees U.S. Uh, companies were on a bunch of these committees and the, a bunch of the U.S. companies went into BIS and said well now that we can't can't um, provide any U.S. origin technology to Huawei. Can we sit on a committee with them, one of these standards committees? Uh, and BIS gave some, some, you know, two pages of kind of, well, it, it, you can't transfer any technology to Huawei. So certainly, if you are in a public meeting, then that will be fine. But if it's a private meeting, you know, don't transfer all, any technology. All bets, yeah, all all bets, bets, bets are, are off is be basically the, the way that they <laughs> they phrased it. And so. You've got uh, you've got U.S. companies kind of left in the lurch, and at least there's a suggestion that unless the meetings are held in public, that U.S. companies really couldn't participate, and that was the message that U.S. companies received. And so U.S. companies started dropping off these standard-setting committees to the point that uh, you know. But the and I, I guess the expectation was that if if U.S. companies uh, dropped off, the committees would just stop their work, but they didn't. They kept going. And so the standards are still being set that you just U.S. just didn't have a seat at the table. And so it was reported earlier this week that BIS is planning to clarify its guidance uh, to permit uh, U.S. companies to go, come back to the table and start participating in these standard setting committees again, which I think is a good development because I think it was relatively unrealistic to think that uh, these committees... Are going to meet in public, which creates all sorts of issues, and, and certainly chills debate in a way that um, you're going to want a bunch of engineers sitting at the table talking about standards to be able to say things without having them reported in the papers the next day. Um, or certainly, if you if that's the consequence, they're not going to say nearly as much as they might say otherwise. So, good development, and and uh, so it's it, and it goes against our theme of tightening things against Huawei. Although I think. Um, that was that was a situation where b i s kind of got gave some guidance. I think maybe it hoped that u s companies would read it to allow them to participate, but that was not how they read it they
0: yeah read and i think it. the other the other piece of this is that it was it was seen, and i know that there was noise coming from Capitol Hill on this and some other parts of d c that you know the u s was essentially um, it was abdicating its leadership role in five yep. g standard setting by Virtue of this, and that was giving Huawei an outsized role and influence in this process. And of course, nobody on the U.S. in the U.S. government wants that. So this is, I I think, an effort to uh, get everybody squared away so that uh, U.S. interests are going to be properly protected, and it'll be it'll signal that they can fully participate without fear of violating uh, U.S. law. So that's this se- This one seems like kind of a no-brainer and this should be i think probably done it seems like in the next few weeks but we'll Let's see.
1: hope this guidance is a lot easier to write than that military end user guidance that we talked about before so yes. I, and i and a lot and likely to be less controversial internally and externally so hopefully it'll come fast so Huawei also is the subject of a criminal prosecution in the Eastern District of New York brought by your old office in combination with MRS, which has actually one of the lead attorneys there was one of our our old partners, um, Laura Billings. So, so it's a, it is a A familiar prosecution team, and in February, they, uh, you know, Huawei was already under indictment for a number of charges, as was its CFO. I mean, this this whole thing came to light when she was uh, arrested in Canada on on, an on uh, an arrest warrant that uh, came out of these proceedings. And so, so that, but but the original charges were were basically sanctions evasion and and money laundering. The new indictment contains a racketeering count, so they've really amped up. The, the stakes. Uh, and and um, as part of that, they, they are now, you know, the criminal case against Huawei is moving, the the extradition of the CFO of um, Meng Wanzhou is is sitting in Canada, and as I understand it, it's going to sit there for a while because they've they had a schedule in which they litigated dual uh, uh, dual criminality in January. They were scheduled uh, to limit to limit. There's apparently a question about whether or not her cell phone and passwords were unlawfully seized, and and so and then the evidence from that was provided to the U.S. and that's apparently going to be the the focus of some hearings coming up. And then in September, they're gonna um, talk talk about the sufficiency of the evidence if they, they get that far. And so that's on a slow track, it appears, or at least a relatively slow track. That the criminal case is moving and Huawei is getting discovery. And so last week, um, the, the DOJ and, and the US Attorney's Office went in and, and they're trying to get a protective order that would prohibit Huawei from sharing Um, sharing any of the discovery with uh, uh, Meng Wanzhou for use in the extradition case. Now, whether or not that is going to be a successful maneuver, it might be because U.S. courts are very restrictive on criminal discovery in ways that consistently astound me, but it does seem kind of unfair that you know if you're going to give it to to Huawei that somebody also facing similar um, arguments up in Canada wouldn't be able to at least see it but that that is pending at this point
0: yeah one other one last quick point on that on that on the criminal case up in Brooklyn is uh, when the indictment was superseded in February uh, there were also trade secret theft charges added right. which is a, a that that is going to be the sort of final, the final, the final thing we're going to talk about yep. here uh, after we make one more Huawei point is, is that push on on IP theft and trade secret trade secret protection pursuant to the G- DOJ China Initiative. So interesting to see that, um, and if if anybody has seen the press release or the indictment, there's quite a bit of uh, ink spilled on the lengths that Huawei has allegedly gone to over the years to steal U.S. trade secrets. So that's Again, interesting, uh, interesting that the DOJ is going to use that uh, as an um, opportunity to focus on that issue. And also yeah. it sort of plays into the broader theme and the broader strategy to try to inflict uh, some pain on, on China on, in that area
1: well i mean in that case is growing and growing and growing i mean it's going to have it, it, the 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 prosecution team looked very large i was trying like to 25, count it's like it,
0: 25 names or
1: something yeah, yeah it's it's exactly. big um so so the the final huawei related issue is actually one that has you know it's it's at the end of our list and it has has flown under the radar, but it actually could turn out to be the biggest issue of any of these. So back in the FY99 uh, Defense Authorization Act, section 889A1B contained a provision that said that uh, anyone that does business with the US government has to certify that they are not using Huawei and a number of other Chinese technology companies' parts in its operations, not in relation to the U.S. government contract that it is working on, but just generally that it's not using Huawei products. And so, you know, there are a lot of government contractors out there doing business with the U.S. government and Huawei products, Chinese technology products generally are a big part of the U.S. economy. And so coming up in August, um, contractors are going to start needing to figure out well they should be trying to figure it out now but they're going to have to start certifying in august whether or not they're using huawei products and 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 you know if they are they they're not going to be eligible for government contracts so it's it's a big deal
0: yeah this is a, a little bit this is really more uh, it's, i think this is this is very squarely on the radar of government contracts uh professionals yeah. and oh, it's yeah. maybe uh, in the trade world this is something that's this there's a reason we're putting it forth because it's sort of not the thing we think about every day, but it does raise a couple of fascinating issues. One is uh, supply chain issues because, to Tim's point, you could be a multinational that has Huawei gear in your systems in Asia or Europe, and you're also a U.S. government contractor. What do you what do you do about that? How do you how do you reconcile those things? Does that mean that you have to walk away from your U.S. government contracts? Do you have to rip out all your Huawei gear? Do you have to? What do, you, what do you do about that? So um, that's a, this is a potentially massive problem that I and, I and I think from what we have heard from our colleagues who focus on government contracts every day, uh, DoD is not sure yet. Uh, they're not sure they admit the language is broad. I think much like with BIS, they are inviting industry to come in with, tell us how this is going to hurt you. Give us specific examples. Let us help let us help you. Uh, help us help you, if you give us more info, we can craft better guidance and, 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 and do more for you. So it remains to be seen how that's all going to play out. But we are only three plus months away from when that rule goes live. So that this is a very big deal and, and something to certainly we may be coming back to.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's flown under the, the radar and the media, I agree with you that it hasn't flown under the, the radar for government contractors, generally, and certainly for, you know, some of the folks that we work with that do that extensively they've been working on that and thinking about it a lot but but the one thing i that i would say you know in terms of timing is it it's it's sneaking up on us and you know the ability to actually do these support these sorts of kind of assessments of your your supply chain are a little bit uh impaired at this point given given the the lockdowns and given where the US economy and U.S. health situation is right now.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. It's going to it's gonna be very challenging for people to uh, wrestle with this, I think, in the coming months. So uh, like I said, I think we'll come be coming back to it uh, in the future. Um, so with that, let, let me pivot to sort of the last part of our enforcement roundup uh, focused on China, which ties back to what we talked to Richard about at the outset, which is uh, one of the big Uh, focus, uh, one big focus of the phase one of the US-China trade deal was IP protection. And uh, related to that, uh, or sort of one of the building blocks of that under this administration was the uh, so-called DOJ-China initiative that was rolled out back in uh, beginning of November 2018. Uh, This is still when Jeff Sessions was the attorney general. And um, so we want I'm going to quickly kind of tick through some recent activity that's connected to the DOJ China Initiative because at, although it contains a number of different sort of line items that are areas of focus, the top three are uh, IP theft and economic espionage and, and re- surging resources and making sure cases uh, and enforcement actions are prioritized in that area, um, trade secret theft cases, and focus on what are known as non-traditional collectors. And so for people who have never worked in intelligence before, non-traditional collectors means uh, academics, researchers, college professors, uh, students, graduate students, uh, people who often have access to highly sensitive information by virtue of their uh, vocations but are not trained uh, intelligence operatives. They are civilians, essentially, that have That are sometimes requested at the behest of foreign governments to uh, provide information, sometimes steal information, steal technology, and bring it back to to that country. So this has been a long-standing concern with respect to China. And those are the top three priorities listed uh, in the DOJ China initiatives. And just in the past couple months, um, we have seen uh, just in February, there were two Trade secret theft cases that uh, where we saw sentencing, uh, one in D.C., one in Oklahoma, both that had uh, sentences of. of uh, the first one was about 16 months in D.C., and then the other case was two years. and And those related to um, those are um, those were signed. Those are in private industry, so people in in private businesses that were involved in trade secret theft uh, for the benefit of China uh, or in connect with connections to China, I should say, for the benefit of actually has specific connotations in this in this world, which can mean economic espionage. It's not technically, they were neither, neither was charged as economic espionage. They're both trade secret theft cases. Um, and so it's just interesting because I, I can tell you that in in the history of the Economic Espionage Act, which dates back to the mid 90s. There were, at the time I was at DOJ, I think there, at one point we were barely into double digits of cases that had ever ever been charged under the Economic Espionage Act. And trade secret theft is is a little different because it's a a slightly easier uh, standard and less facts are necessary to prove those cases. But um, there has been, by virtue of the China Initiative, I think a clear surging of resources and emphasis on these cases. So the fact that there were just a couple of these types of cases that came down within a couple of weeks of each other is, is also noteworthy. There's also sort of the, what I would regard as kind of the flagship prosecution under this, which is the Micron case. Um, that was, the indictment was unsealed on, in that case on the day that the DOJ China Initiative was announced. Um, two defendants in that case. One is a Taiwanese company, United Microelectronics Corporation. The other is a, a Chinese state-owned enterprise uh, Fujian Genoa Integrated Circuit Company, um, and Micron is a US-based semiconductor company, and they were the victims of, uh, of uh, trade secret theft, and they brought a lawsuit to enforce their rights. The DOJ fa- followed about a year later to bring this criminal prosecution, um, and in that case is in, in San Jose, I believe, in uh, Northern District California. It's filed now over a year and a half ago, not too much has happened in part because as um, anybody who's ever done one of these cases or been involved in one of these cases knows, there's a lot of back and forth usually about protective orders and, um, and keeping information protected as Tim alluded to in the, in the Huawei case. There's even in a case like that, there's a lot of steps that usually need to happen in terms of keeping information protected. And uh, that there's still, there've been a lot of back and forth on that front in the early days of, of this case. Um, and, but that is still chugging along, and I would expect uh, will be for some time, for some number of years. Um, so that's just a, sort of a quick snapshot of those types of kind of more traditional trade secret theft, economic espionage cases. And then on the non-traditional collector category, there's been a veritable um avalanche of those cases that have come out uh, that where there's been significant action this year in in January there was the Harvard professor the Harvard chemistry professor that was um, charged in connection with being associated with what's known as the thousand talents program if, if you don't know what that is it's a Chinese program um, that is basically designed to encourage and cultivate uh, sort of academics researchers to uh, go out into the world, not just the US, but all around the world, and sort of develop their talents, gather information and best practices, and then come back to China and use those talents and that information for the benefit of China. (laughs) The um, The way it is viewed largely by US law enforcement is that this is a it's a, system, it's a systematized program by the Chinese government to encourage people to steal U.S. intellectual property and bring it back to China. Now, we could debate what's the truth in terms of what the program is and what it really means, but where we have seen more cases and where U.S. researchers and academics have gotten in trouble is they have failed to disclose connections and funding that they have received from either the Thousand Talents Program or other Chinese universities that are state controlled and they have simultaneously been doing research for U.S. government programs here in the States. And so that's where the Harvard professor got into trouble. There was a, um, a West Virginia University professor who actually pled guilty under sort of similar facts um, in, just in March. And then there was another professor who was down in the, at the UT Knoxville in Tennessee, um, again, similar um, uh, facts where they were, there was a a NASA work being done and also for a a Beijing university. And so, um, this is a, this is truly a new day on these types of cases, because these were not cases that we saw five years ago. Um, and this is really a new development. And so, I think the high level point really here is, again, to the, to the academic research community, much like what Tim was talking about with respect to uh, export controls and how this is impacting those folks in a new and different and much broader, harsher way than it ever has before. Similarly in the U S there is a lot to be uh, sort of worried about from a compliance standpoint in terms of intellectual property and export control materials that people have access to at these, at these institutes and And the sort of cross-pollination of any kind of funding that's coming in to any of these people from China and also from U.S. government agencies, that is kind of the sweet spot in the Venn diagram where DOJ is kind of going after people. And Tim and I both being sort of criminal defense attorneys by training, um, if you're going to sit down for an interview with the U.S. government, don't lie to them. If you lie to them, you're going to make it worse. And a lot of these cases sort of come down to that also and and so again i think just worth highlighting that this this has been there's been a relative flurry of activity here in the first part of this year in these in these areas and i think it's directly traceable largely to the to the china initiative which is again, only about 18 months old, and, and I think there's going to be a lot more to come in, in these areas going forward. So I've droned on too long, but let me toss it over to Tim. No, first. no, I mean, this stuff Talk. is,
1: this is a big deal, and and I think it's going to continue. I I will note that, um and maybe we'll put it in show notes, I was reading a good article in Politico from early April. The, the title of the article was Inside DOJ's Nationwide Effort to Take on China, and so it does lay out a lot of the stuff that you just talked about, Brian, in, in some detail. And it really is a, a it, it really is a um, a very uh, large and and nationwide focused focused effort in order to kind of combat China's what what DOJ views as China's infiltration into U.S. universities and and research. Labs. The one thing that the reason that I was looking at this article, it actually wasn't in getting ready for this, but the reason I was looking at this article is that uh, it, it had some quotes from DOJ uh, and from U.S. Attorney's Office that said that the this sort of push was not going to be affected at all by COVID. That is, and this was in April, so this was after a lot of the lo- lockdowns had stopped. Um, or had started, and pe- and and a lot of the courts had closed, and uh, and so you know the thinking I think was that all DOJ initiatives or virtually all DOJ initiatives were going to be affected by the the coronavirus. But the quotes from the U.S. attorneys were saying that it had not only has the the efforts not stopped, but that that the coronavirus had not substantially in, hindered their development it hindered their ability to develop cases. And so, you know, you get a quote that said it really hasn't slowed the progress of investigations or prosecutions. We've adapted to this model. It won't have a short-term or long-term impact on the China initiative. And so, so, you know, I know for that other areas, including in some sense, export controls and sanctions really have been affected by the, by the the coronavirus. And we talked about this at some length in an an earlier uh, episode, but, this thing is so high priority that they're trying not to slow down during COVID. And while I, I, you know, still quite, I'm a little skeptical that it won't affect them at all. It sounds like they're trying to push through this in a way that you know a lot of criminal cases are just stalled.
0: Yeah, and and just to tie this all up with two points related to some things we talked about earlier. Number one, uh, again, phase one of the China-U.S. Uh, trade deal featured these sort of IP-related. Uh, you know concessions or pledges by the Chinese, um, as this is not this. I think is evidencing and and not that we would think things would change overnight, but this is a longer term issue and problem that is not going away by virtue of anything that's in the trade deal. Just period, full stop. And yeah. so this is something that DOJ and the U.S. government is going to t- continue to be focused on, and that anybody who has intersection with any of these issues or is in any of these fields needs to needs to be aware of and needs to be thinking about both from you know protecting your own interests and protecting your people
1: and and I also don't think it's going away as a priority. I mean right. I, regardless of what happens in the 2020 election, I think that the that a a high level DOJ priority is likely to be information theft from China.
0: I agree 100% with that. And then the the last point is much like with what we were talking about with respect to adversarial capital and opportunism by the Chinese and others, perhaps to invest uh, to sort of get in while the getting is good when the US is maybe knocked down or catching its breath coming back from COVID, I think there's probably a similar fear here that these non traditional collectors and other people that are uh, going to be inclined or maybe are being requested to perpetrate these types of Uh, information gathering efforts or IP theft or what have you are going to maybe be emboldened right now when the the spotlight is on so many other things to try to, um, you know, get in while the getting is good. And so I do think that the enforcement, the, the message from the enforcers that we're not going away, there's, this is staying a high priority and don't think that we're not paying attention to this is, is probably one to be heated, although we know, I'm sure, that there are probably going to be people trying to take advantage of the current climate to, to, um, you know, to, to get their hands on information and to pass it along where they can. So I do think that we, we may see, I would not be surprised if there's a, a, another flurry of activity that comes out of uh, sort of bad acts and things that are found out to have been going on during this period um, because people thought maybe they could get away with something.
1: Totally agree. Totally agree.
0: Um, so with that, we have gone, uh, I, I'm glad we cut out the lightning round because this would have been like a seven-hour podcast if we had kept it in. But China um, is I, the
1: world's China. biggest country, and so it deserved the world's longest <laughs> That podcast. is
0: That is true. The China stravaganza is, is now, at least this is the first China stravaganza. I think we right. could very well be coming back for a round two or round three or more. But uh, with that, we're going to wrap up. Um, so thank you to everybody as always for listening. Um, if you're, uh, again, uh, if you, if you like this one, if you like prior episodes, please, uh, subscribe to the pod. We'll be back in two weeks. Uh, likely no special guests next time and and likely no, no, uh, sole focus on China next time, but, um, please subscribe, give us a rating, uh, and, uh, until then stay safe, stay home, uh, and stay well. And of course, stay sanctions free.
1: Stay sanctions-free, everybody, and thanks for listening.
0: Thanks, everyone. Take care.